everyone, we're going to get started. Um, I'm Shailene. I work in the fiction department here, and I want to welcome you to Poetry and Conversation. We're very happy to see everyone. And we hope that you'll come back May 2nd for an evening with Mary Jo Salter and Stephen Campa, and June 13th with Mary Azriel and Kendra Kapelke. Also in April, we have Sonia Sanchez coming, April 25th. And April 16th, we're going to have Edward Hirsch and Thomas Lux. Tonight, however, is very special. And here's what we have planned, our format. First, um, my colleague Kathleen is going to introduce all the poets together. Then each of the poets will read for about 10 minutes. Then we're going to have some Q&A. And then each poet will read a closing poem. And we want to give you a heads up that around uh, about 10 minutes of 7, there's going to be um, an announcement. The library will be closing very loud. And just uh, ignore it. <laughs> OK, now my friend Kathleen will introduce the poets. OK, I'm going to introduce them. Um, um, they're married couples. I'm going to introduce Jane Satterfield and Ned Balbo, a married couple, and <laughs> Sam Schmidt and Virginia Crawford next. Um, Jane Satterfield is the author of two poetry collections, Assignation at Vanishing Point and Shepherdess with an Automatic, and the nonfiction title Daughters of Empire, a memoir of a year in Britain and beyond. Among her awards are an NEA Fellowship and the Faulkner Society Gold Medal, as well as residencies from the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. A new manuscript, Her Familiars, was a finalist for the year's National Poetry Series, and her poem, The War Years, won the 2011 Miss Lexia Poetry Competition. Jane teaches uh, writing at Loyola University, Maryland. Many of Jane's poems reimagine seemingly forgotten historical struggles and concerns as they press against the present in its self-absorbed pursuits, asking us to remember and confront, as she does in one poem, how much it cost and who's paying. Ned Balbo received the 2010 Donald Justice Prize for the trials of Edgar Poe and other poems. His previous books are Lives of the Sleepers, Galileo's Banquet, and the chapbook Something Must Happen. He has received three Maryland Arts Council grants, the Robert Frost Foundation Poetry Award, and the John Guion Literary Nonfiction Prize. He also teaches at Loyola University, Maryland. Employing both traditional forms and free verse, Ned's poems approach the famous and infamous from sources as varied as art and literature, classic horror movies, and comic books to reveal the ghosts that haunt our lives, offering hope that in the telling of these apparitions, a new covenant, if not of forgiveness, at least understanding, can be formed. For our next couple, Virginia Crawford is poet, poet in residence with the Maryland State Arts Council teaches through the Artists in Education program. Her first collection of poems, Touch, was featured on WYPR's Maryland Morning. Her poems have appeared in Gargoyle, the Mass Tequila Review, the Potomac, a journal of poetry and politics, 
as well as others. Virginia's lyrical meditations illuminate the unspoken and imagined moments that give our lives transcendence. From heaven in the emerald clutter of snow peas to as yet unborn children carried in the sound of her husband's voice. Sam Schmidt's first collection of poems, Suburban Myths, comes out this year. His work has appeared in the Maryland Poetry Review, Black Moon, the Dancing Shadow Preview, Review, I'm sorry, the Potomac Review, and Gargoyle. With his wife, he credited the he co-edited the anthology Poetry Baltimore, Poems About a City. He is the founder and editor of Word House, Baltimore's newsletter for writers. In Sam's poems, natural history in the form of a T-Rex or prehistoric sharks is no more terrifying than facing down a furnace, sump pump, or the menacing kitchen knives that can sever and yet also open to reveal the myth of security in our everyday lives, exposing the difficulties, fear, and also joy found in creation, whether of poetry, families, or love. Thank you, and join me in welcoming Jane, Ned, Virginia, and Sam, please. Thanks, Kathleen. Should, it's great to um, be back at the Pratt. Thanks for having us, and um, thanks to everyone for coming out tonight. Um, it's a great honor to read in the Poe Room. It's wonderful to have the figure of Poe looming over us. Um, I'm going to start with a Baltimore poem, and um, this poem is called uh, Last Dinner at Louis with Levis. And um, Larry Levis is one of my favorite poets. I had the chance of meeting him um, at, at a dinner when I was um, in my early 20s. And I'm a little bit of an introvert, so um, I'm very shy, and I tend not to ask questions when I meet famous people. Uh, so um, the poem kind of looks back on that. But Louis is a great Baltimore Books, independent bookstore and restaurant that is much missed by many of us who have lived here most of our lives. So it's kind of a tribute to the poet and also to um, Louis' restaurant. Uh, last dinner at Louis' with Levis. Not the she-she place that supplanted it, gold shears and archaic columns, but the arty bookstore cafe, some short steps from monument and museum. Cafe of ambition, ambivalence, indolence, of all-nighters, morning-afters. Cafe where I bought Bernhard and Borowski, Heaney and Herbert. Cafe of gravy-slopped fries by the platter to share. Cafe of blinking, low-wattage lights, whose smoke reek brought on grievous migraines. Cafe where I chugged espresso to hear. For once, the heart resound in my chest. Cafe where Levis is talking to us, 20-somethings wreathed in the afterglow of simply being invited along. There's the perfectly poised conversational tone in which he described the $3 vision of a mescaline trip, the high church hush as we took it all in, leaning a little closer above the clink of glasses, the stereo's rising volume. There's Levis, a rule breaker, someone important. There's how he stirred coffee, simply, with no sign of flourish, didn't once betray any boredom, even if he felt it, at going through one more gig. There's the tattered sleeves of my cardigan edged with ink 
as if I authored a book called Ernest. What a phrase like the look of distance might mean to the one teller of the tale, talking to a table of listeners who'd climbed rickety stairs to a corner table as if it were an understanding at which they'd arrived. There's field notes for the vision quest I never had. How these days my hunger's for quiet, mostly, and a little peace. There's the way anything said in passing can grow so much larger than life. How, by the time dessert arrived with its garnish of white and chocolate curls, the conversation took on the patinated finish of anything lost to time. There's how elegy is not commodity, not a comestible, even though it inscribes a long-gone invitation to pick up a fork and dig in. There's how I could walk up the block to that refurbished storefront, how break and enter is the only means of admission, a tactic which seems like desecration of memory, which assumes its own style and means of embellishment. Memory, which is nothing if not aspirational, no matter the affectations it's picked up, throwing locutions like truly diabolical food into the mix. There's the fist raised about to smash the plated glass storefront window in the way something else will always intrude, like the authentic rattle of boxcars into the night, freight thrumming through a Virginia field, which already starts to sound like lament, a full moon glazing summer's already wizened grass. I worked on that poem when um, I was away from Baltimore. So interestingly, I think we often write about places that we're fond of that we're not necessarily aware that we're fond of when we're away from them and miss them. Um, and I know many years ago, Sam put together an anthology of poems about Baltimore. And at that point, I'd lived in Baltimore for something like 10 years and had no Baltimore poems. So I finally completed my assignment. <laughs> um, the next poem I'll read um, is a poem from a different um, city. And this one's um, from my first book, Shepherdess with an Automatic. Um, and if you're a soccer fan, you might be familiar with hooliganism. And that's what this poem's about. Um, it, narrates the um, event that was described to me by my younger brother who was taken to um, a game in Glasgow between the Celtics and the Rangers. So there's legendary um, battling that takes place on the field. And um, I transfer from, from that memory to a description of traveling in the, the tube in England on the underground. And during that time when I was there, there was a poetry and poetry on the underground um, uh, celebration going on and the poem that was in the tube that I was in was written by Pasternak which um, I, I thought was a love poem um, and it's really about being in prison and just longing for a piece of land that he can stand on so that's the backdrop to hooliganism huh? we got travel a long way from soccer um, but anyway here goes hooliganism the game in Glasgow blew my brother away the old man the young both bombed and bottles slicing the air and flesh and threats flying fast as fists, and at the edge of the bloodied pitch, he could see everything. The game's no more than a gorgeous pretext, the real matters taking sides. Innocence abroad, we smiled at such stunts, something off the guidebook and better, a glimpse of subculture on the underground. A crowd gathered close to where we stood. Back from some other match, they swilled bud at seven bucks for four cans, taunting an Asian standing alone about visiting the queen mom for tea. Quick now, what do you do? My cousin, the Francophile, turned up his nose. He was just doing the decent thing. He was disgusted by the sets before Bowie, some band bobbing the blues, 
and the men, they couldn't hang. Silence, so we followed suit. In an instant, I could see our inheritance, the family resemblance, travelers, all of us, hurtling through dark space, crossing a border where survival depends on unusual skill, seem distanced, mildly revolted, don't let the wrong people know. So I read a poem of Pasternak's, tacked between adverts, while the chanting supporters debarked from the tube, danger dispersed like some freak storm. That day I assumed an allegiance, entered the homeland I swore off all along, the blood like warning bells in my ears, don't look at anyone, don't open your mouth. Keep quiet. Whatever you say, say nothing. Good advice, right? <laughs> um, I'm going to read a poem from uh, my second book, Assignation at Vanishing Point. And um, my, my dad was in the Air Force, and my uh, mother wa is um, a descendant of Irish immigrants um, who grew up in England. Um, so my, my parents, when I was growing up, had this strange sort of lingo. They used a lot of um, Englishisms. And as kids, we would pick them up, which kind of made us stand out. And one of the things my dad would always refer to the car boot. It's in the boot. It's in the boot, um, which is the trunk. So that makes its way into the poem. And my dad had a habit of leaving his um, gear. He was in the reserves. So during the Cold War, um, years long gone now, he carried his uniform and kit bag with him in the event that he was called up, he would be able to just grab that bag and get to his destination and be flown off um, to, to the base on the last base at the edge of the free world. So um, that's kind of the backdrop of this poem, which is called Instant Combat Kit. For years, my father's bag stashed in the car boot, leather worn bra, this side of suede, packed and ready in case, flight suit, polished boots, an instant combat kit signed sealed, to be delivered due east, the border, the base, the last battle laughed. How it hummed the air with the imminent action, our house under the flight path, weekend war games. The enemy out there, always expected and just within reach, through crosshairs and radar screen. And though it seemed unique to our age, apocalypse now, blackout, bombardier, passage of flame, The use of stock photos is strictly forbidden. <laughs> the use of stock photos is strictly forbidden. So really, what's different? Just our hands on the switch. In the old dream of empire in late afternoon, the story the child saint raced into, a covert host in his cloak, is simply a case of street violence. And the body sent into the streets, stand in and look out, a shape divested of meaning. And the blows coming down, until you see you have to forego it, reason the right explanation, plot whispering, did you deliver? what can be reached. I was very enchanted as a child by um, these stories, which later um, I realized were apocryphal. They're stories about child saints who um, carried the sacred host from one religious community um, in the late Roman times to another. And um, as I got older, I started realizing that um, maybe it just had to do with bread and survival rather than um, a host. So that kind of got into the backdrop of that poem. Um, the last poem I'll read is from a new book called Her Familiars, and um, 
I was um, inspired by this for this poem by a friend of mine who's a um, young adult novelist. And one of the things that she felt that she was pressured to do is to describe um, teenagers' clothing in um, the young adult novels that that she was writing. And she said, no, my my protagonists are, you know, not not product driven. Um, and she maintained that integrity. And um, just as we were having that conversation via email, I was looking at some of the books my daughter was reading, which were um, books um, about the antics of something called The Pretty Committee, which I think was, <laughs> you probably know those books. They're, um, you know, a, a sort of light, gossip girl light, perhaps, might be one way of describing them. So I started thinking about um, the images of um, uh, the, the pretty committee and the connection between bitches and witches. So this is her familiars. Um, begins with an epigraph from um, Witch Hunt, the History of a Persecution. Um, Hopkins was particularly fond of getting people to confess to having signed a pact with the devil, but charges also included bewitching people or livestock to death, causing illness and lameness, and entertaining spirits or familiars, which usually turned out to be household pets, her familiars. Just past her birthday, 13th, my daughter's engrossed in the antics of the pretty committee, who swish bags in tow, shop for amazing LBDs. So while I'm lamenting the mere fact it exists, this primer for learning popularity skills and the proper product lines, why not take a tip from today's radio guest, who assures me the mommy makeover is the ticket for women not yet past their prime, that a little time under the knife perks up the buttocks and pulls in a gut, erases the damage done by all that devotion to your little dears. Just the ticket to recharge my spirit and sex life. Ever notice how age or oddness offends? Same with widowhood or willingness to buck the trends. Just look at the woodcut, frontispiece to the discovery of witches, London, circa 1647, where one-legged Elizabeth Clark, whose mother may be witchy with words or wise with a cure, a heretic hung before her. After three days without food or sleep, Clark finally confessed the name of her five familiars, Holt, News, Sack and Sugar, Jamara, and Vinegar Tom, Cats, Rabbit, Spaniel, and Greyhound. Take Faith Mills of Fressingham, whose three pet birds wrought havoc by inducing a cart by magic and a cow to jump over a sty. An affection for animals, it seems, in the eyes of the powerful was as good as witchcraft, a grievous reed hanging crime. Thank God the girls in the pretty committee all find the right dress and strappy stilettos. Thank God they Twitter and text to stay in step with the times. The pressures of fashion are many. The plot, as my daughter says, will improve. Soon, one of the gang will be on the outs. From gossip, innuendo, and grievance, anyone can construct a watertight case. How came you to be acquainted? Was the favorite <laughs> was the favored question of Hopkins. How came you to be acquainted was the favored question of Hopkins, the self-appointed witchfinder general, bearer of needles and bodkins, Puritan cloak and cape the best accessories of his time.
The feeble, the poor, and otherwise unpopular didn't stand a chance. From fees charged to the estates of the accused, he made a not unpretty profit. Thank you. I'm Ned, and uh, thanks Judy and Shailene and everyone at the library for having us, and it's great to see some familiar faces out there. Um, I'm going to start out uh, with a couple poems from my second book, Lives of the Sleepers. This is called Second Circle. If you remember, the inferno of the second circle is where the lustful are endlessly um, circling in the wind of their own desires, never ever to connect or to be together. Um, so if you're lustful, that's how you'll be punished. I'm looking at you Loyola students. I'm just teasing. <laughs> second Circle. The inferno, second, Canto Five, and Pinsky's, uh, uh, Robert Pinsky's translation is the first line, Helen Perpetual Motion. So Second Circle. Helen Perpetual Motion. Hurricane that twists us upward and apart, great wind, unending, force that bears us, rends us limb from aching limb, great storm. Won't you slow down? Won't you pause for one moment? Let us fall once more against those rocks, however sharp below us, there to rest and catch our breath as in life we did not. So many souls, such bodies passing over, couplings never to be relived or never known. So many who died strangers, more lost souls thrown past each other, pummeled for all time by winds and crosswinds, calling out alone to all those we would gladly touch again. Some people just never learn their lesson. And uh, here's a, uh, another poem I rarely read from the same book. This is called Turtsenel with Lines from Bartra Hari. It's a, uh, a, a poem of, uh, uh, of farewell. And the uh, uh, epigraph is, Renunciation of worldly attachment is only the talk of scholars whose mouths are wordy with wisdom. Renouncing finally all the world offers, you put your hair back up. I watch you dress. But isn't this only the talk of scholars, mouths wordy with wisdom, who impress each other, but not us, with vague abstractions? I touch your hair gently, watching you dress, clasp pressed between breast shadow, all your actions well-timed and precise. Lovers grown tired of one another, not us, Seek abstractions sometimes, reasons why they might feel scared or trapped or simply restless. All the nights so well-timed and precise, leaving them tired instead of touched with light. Twin satellites that separate at last. You find your skirt adrift beneath a chair near crushed. The night's gains change to loss. You look a little hurt, renouncing finally all the world offers more pain or pleasure, smoothing down your skirt, remembering, at most, the talk of scholars.
I have a, uh, not a unique, but a complicated um, biography uh, with which some of you are quite familiar and others not at all. And rather than spending a lot of time explaining it, I'm just going to read one poem about it. And it's called Whose Son, Whose Daughter? And this uh, sort of odd corner of my biography, I, I am an adopted person and my sister uh, is also adopted, but we were um, raised in separate families. Uh, but eventually uh, lived in the same neighborhood and did not know we were brother and sister uh, while we both grew up. And this is a villanelle, and it's called Whose Son, Whose Daughter? It's about that awkward time when you're a teenager and you're walking around high school and you and this other person share a secret, uh, but you can't really talk about it with each other uh, and you certainly don't want anyone else to know. And so this is circa 1975. It's for my sister, Whose Son, Whose Daughter? Sister... When you blew smoke against the glass, I looked up at the school bus, stood below in snow. For months, you knew whose son I was, whose daughter you were. A block away, your house, grandparents who'd raised you waited. Crunching snow, the bus moved on. You blew smoke on the glass, red stoplights flashed, brakes groaned again. Your voice carried as you stepped off. Don't look back now. For months before I knew whose son I was, we'd pass in the halls, then look away. I guess when told, you thought, it's better not to know. I watched. Laughing, you'd blown smoke on the glass while I imagined other lives for us, those missing years. If I'd been raised with you, all gone. I thought I'd known whose son I was, but now, too late, you'd passed from view. The bus scattered exhaust on snow heaped by the plow. How much was lost, like breath against cold glass? You tried hard to forget whose son I was. I'm going to read a poem from my third book, The Trials of Edgar Poe. I'm always very happy to read under his painting here from a book with his name in the title, Edgar Look On. He was called Ned in his childhood. And he, this is a bit of his biography, and there are some connections probably with my own. I think his work is uh, pretty fascinating and pretty powerful in so many ways. And this is a Sestina called The Trials of Edgar Poe. It's my next to last poem, and the next one is extremely short. The Trials of Edgar Poe. And there's an epigraph from Kenneth Silverman's biography, a son of Charles Ellis recalled an evening in the Allen's house. So this is Edgar Poe growing up. While a few guests sat quietly at card tables, Edgar covered himself with a sheet and carrying a long cane entered the room as a ghost. Doesn't really surprise you that Edgar Allan Poe would do that, does it? Intending, Ellis said, to frighten the whole body of whist players who were in truth stirred to a commotion. And I know that makes you want to all go out and learn to play whist. The Trials of Edgar Poe. A star-struck audience, Richmond, Virginia, at November's end, had seen the tale unfolding in Eliza's ruined looks, her now grave, all-too-gaunt appearance, all was black. In days, her children would be motherless, sent off to separate households, one more actress cut from the performance's last act. Edgar, not yet three, stayed in Virginia. Mrs. Allen, ailing, childless, and no relation, 
sought to change the tale's too tragic twist, had worn away his black mood till, at last, John Allen nodded gravely. Wealthy merchant Scott, who, to the grave, detested his most charitable act. Later, in London, window panes filmed black with coal so its servants scrubbed away, not Virginia by a long shot. Allen found his vital interests under threat, the market less robust than he'd believed soon to collapse. Less vital was the boy who gravitated wide-eyed to the parrot with its tell-tale squawk and garish crest, bought to distract the troubled wife, expatriate Virginian homesick and housebound. But when those black years passed, John Allen once more in the black through an inheritance, the boy was less than England's Edgar Allen. In Virginia, he was Edgar Poe, Eliza's gravestone and a father's disappearing act, his mournful legacy, the sick wife's battle lost beneath her husband's dour gaze. The brittle truth, he's no one's son. One night, the black halls steeped in shadow, Edgar felt that fact, the specter of his own fears. Bodiless, he shrieked, sheet-covered, frightening those graven images at twist, Cards spilled, Virginia's science spooked and startled, Alan on the verge of apoplexy, blackest cataract, at which Poe laughed, now fatherless, to the grave. And the last poem is, if I can only find it, actually one that's posted uh, currently at the Baltimore Review, uh, where Kathleen Helen and, and uh, uh, Barbara Deal were so kind to invite me to submit a poem. This is called Dark Horse, and this is actually a poem about Jane and me, uh, because we were at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts a few years back, and we were wandering around in the dark at night with our little flashlight, and what do we come upon but a dark horse? <laughs> Hence the title of the poem, Dark Horse. This moonlit night, we've come upon a horse. His equine profile looms above barbed wire, so close we might have touched him accidentally. As we pass along this country road on foot, our flashlights, small moons, flicking off. We don't want to startle him. He's still, and we can't see his eyes. Is he asleep, awake, and watching us, or in the grip of dread? He might be dangerous at night. By day, he's chestnut brown, but now he's shadow. Eyes invisible, mane, moonlight tinged. The hills behind him, dim, vertiginous, with all the history his kind have known, entwined with ours each day and every darkness. Thanks a lot. I thought I'd start with two uh, small poems that <clears throat> come from those moments in a relationship where you feel something has happened or you've passed some particular point in the relationship afterwards. Uh, early on, after I met Sam, we uh, there was a blizzard, something we didn't get much of this year. Um, and it's one of those moments in the relationship when you know something. I wish for blizzards. 
Every winter I wish for blizzards, like our first year when we watched the snowflakes fall in the silver night, until the world became so beautiful I could not look. Now we watch together from the window or the open door, the snowflakes sparkle in the streetlights, each one falling tenderly upon the next, and I am glad when they are piled so high there is nowhere else to go. And then this one uh, was actually mentioned in the introduction. It's called In Tongues. All night we've been reading poems to each other. All night I've listened to his sound, watched his mouth make words. Soon he will be my husband. Our children are carried, sleeping quietly inside him, like language he doesn't know he has yet, waiting for what he calls the right time, when I imagine they will come dancing in and out of me and teach us how to speak. He says, good morning, sweetheart. I know he's talking to the cat, but I hear him wake our daughter. And then uh, one from the book Touch, uh, which I wrote specifically for Sam, and it came out of an experience of reading Billy Collins. And occasionally I read something and I think, oh, there's some sort of connection. I could do something kind of, sort of like that. So I use that poem sort of as a skeleton and follow the structure. Uh, and that's what I did for this one. So it comes a sort of stealing Billy Collins structure. <laughs> Night poem to my husband. I get up from the tangled bed and go outside, a bear leaving its cave, a hermit crab looking for its next shell, only to stand on the lawn, a simple person amid sleeping brick houses. If I were younger, I might be thinking about my newest lover, about his cologne or the smoke in my favorite sweater, but as it is, I am simply aware, someone standing in the grass, sensing only the wet coldness of the grass and the breeze that stirs the tops of the trees. The cat has followed me out and stands a little behind, her eyes lifted as if she were wondering what I am doing, what are those lights in the sky, and there was something else I wanted to tell you, something about the fresh peach comfort we share in our house, but now I am wondering if you are even listening and why I bother to tell you these things that will never make a difference, unfinished sentences, crunched up leaves. But this is all I wanted to do, to tell you that down the alley a few rabbits were running, and that the sky was clear and high above me, and that at one point the moon, looking like a freshly peeled orange our girl would like to eat, appeared quite clearly from behind a thin cloud. And then I'll end with a, a really, really new poem. Um, it's kind of funny. It's about our honeymoon. <laughs> uh, Highway 101. Our first week married, we drove south from Portland along the coast toward California. I remember the road winding in places, sitting beside you in the rented car, the sense of hours of road ahead. 
In California, we took pictures of each other beside the ancient trees. We looked so small, so inconsequential, framed in the viewfinder. Now I see you, twelve and a half years later, sitting up in bed, back to the window, moonlight, so much moonlight through the open curtain. And it's Highway 101, a full moon on the Pacific, everything blue, black, bright white, or sparkling somewhere between. We pass cities, farms, and cabins built into the cliffside, designed to withstand things like wind and the normal erosion of time. I wondered what life would be like there to wake season after season together beside the ocean, toast and raspberry jam, coffee to go with the fog, and maybe a walk on the beach before we sit to work. We even visited the sea lions, saw their huge bodies on the rock ledge, the inside of the cave where they winter. It was the first time I'd seen sea lions, their immenseness more like elephants than lions, almost covering the rock. From the highway at one point, I saw so briefly the most beautiful sand dunes. Everything golden, the shapes indescribable, the curves of women too beautiful to exist. You drove us to Haystack Rock, described your childhood visits as I enjoyed an ice cream, something the shop called French silk, a combination of several kinds of chocolate. They might have called it paradise. We walked, me licking, you talking, and I thought of the highway, the way it runs so close to the edge sometimes, of that fog that blinds, but mostly of all that space we plan to cover. All the hours together in what might feel like a too small car. And out of all that I might have feared, what I remember was my sense of relief to be beside you. It was the first time I'd seen the West, my first time as a wife, your wife, my, and my husband also a poet. We stopped to photograph lighthouses, tidal pools, the rocks and their barnacles, seagrasses waving, orange starfish slumped together, their legs casually thrown over each other. We passed the one good camera between us every few minutes, careful not to drop the precious thing that it was. All these years later, I can't tell which pictures were mine, which yours. Thank you. Gee, all those poems about me makes me feel kind of embarrassed. <laughs> um, but I have I have some about her too. I thought uh, my book has come out, and it's it's uh, and uh, there's some on the table back there. Uh, and uh, it's wonderful to be here in the Poe Room. And I I uh, just want to say I love that introduction of my book. It was so so nice to to hear that. Uh, so the, so I'm just picking out some of the poems that. Uh, seem to have some connection with my wife or married life. The first third of the book is really about marriage and family life. Uh, this is called How They Met, and it's really sort of about the question, who tells that story and why? The old story 
of true love found. She tells it again. Here is what he remembers. One evening he heard the knives rattle. Writing or watching TV, he could hear them in the kitchen. On sliding open the drawer, he could swear that their bright gleam on metal was a grin. The grin seemed to say, good boy. You are so right to think you don't need anyone. Love us instead. Press us. Let us kiss your neck and your wrist. That smitten look. How many times had he raised it before, like an arrow, it struck? He remembers those days for the absence in them of fate, the memory of a stranger he'd spent time with, almost given up. To him, the miracle was how out of that stranger she began to emerge, a known and shining face out of formlessness, this woman who now stands beside him, calmly recounting a fairy tale, him nodding and saying, yes, it was just like that. You know, I was uh, putting together this uh, book and uh, I couldn't figure out how it would be organized and the uh, and it was wonderful that the, I sent it to uh, Bayotak Books, which is this little publisher in D.C. And they wrote me back and they said, we really like the poems, but the, the order is wrong. And they totally reorganized it. And, uh, and he said, well, the, and the only problem is that the first section is too short. Do you have any more poems like that? And it just so happened that I did. It was the oddest thing. So, um, and, uh, you know, they were poems that I had, I had so many poems that I'd gotten so far in and then abandoned, and so I tore through all that paper and found them again and finished them up. This is called Pregnant Wife. She lies now on the sofa, not quite capable of rising, looks up at me with utter satisfaction. It's as if I'm looking back into a deep, clear well or like the biggest jawbreaker she coveted in childhood has finally got inside her. Walking is a waltz. She's leaning back against the counterweight of that other dancer. When we share the shower, turning in and out of spray, I sometimes grab her suddenly. It's love, but also fear of falling. Our child, in her amniotic cottage, must hear fresh rain breaking over her roof. My wife's nakedness moves me to imagine the enormous fruit that grows in heaven. I admire on her belly a faint blue marbling that puts to shame the golden mottling of the pear.
Okay, so uh, this is another poem like that that was saved by the need to have uh, to have a larger first section of the book, um, and it requires me to to uh, pretend to be a dog at one point. So I hope don't be alarmed. It's called Suburban Husband, and in this this first couple lines are in italics and indented as a white dog barks incessantly. I'm the man who avoids the neighbors because they cock their heads like finches when I use words they vaguely recognize from back covers of Reader's Digest. I'm unable to answer their questions about the proper handling of the flag. I'm hesitant about installing new electric outlets, fearful the furnace might explode, afraid of the sump pump, that it may one day quit right when it floods, also afraid to inspect it for fear of causing that very problem. Your husband, horrified of the lawnmower, that it could suddenly vibrate out of my hands, go on a rampage, mow down the white dog that is barking incessantly. Mow down those neighbors at the very moment they have just stepped back to admire a flagpole they've installed. <laughs> I follow a secret passage through my dreams into the world. It's night, and who would have guessed it? I'm also the white dog. Beware, I'm barking. The neighbors are finches in disguise. The sump pump is unreliable. Its mother was a respectable hand-operated well pump, but its father was a garden hose. The electricity in your walls longs to rejoin its wild cousins in the clouds. Can't you hear it plotting with the furnace? Beware, beware, and whatever you do, for God's sake, don't subscribe to Reader's Digest. <laughs> With my keen ears, I hear myself, several houses over, snoring next to you in bed. Oh, thanks. Um, okay, I'm just going to, I have one poem that I can read at the very end. Now, I think that marriage is not only, uh, well, actually, Probably all the poems I've read have demonstrated that marriage is about anxiety. So uh, this this poem is is kind of uh, uh, it's kind of uh, it's actually think of it as a dream sequence, but it's kind of taking the anxiety of a husband and father to uh, to extraordinary lengths. And uh, I think it's clear from this poem that I have absolutely no idea what goes on inside a car, inside the engine of a car. Suburban myth, this is called Suburban Myth Number 87. And the poem is actually four sonnets. A man is driving down 95 toward the tunnel. His kids are shouting maniacally, the ants go marching five by five, and his wife is pouting in the mirror to check her lipstick, half-heartedly singing along. 
Suddenly the engine starts to tick and then to ping and then goes wrong. Silently their van slows and stops on the eerily empty highway. The family clamors out. Dad pops the hood. Around them, industries decay. The bay a gray slick at the sight line. The smell of sulfur mixed with brine. Here's our problem, he says, reaching in as a puff of steam engulfs them all. He easily lifts out the engine, which has turned into a complex ball of feathers and cat skeleton. Picture them now, brief work of art, father, mother, daughter, son, with tons of metal that won't start. His wife gives him that look, as if, as a man, he must have expertise in the magic of making stopped things go. And maybe he does. Stretching his stiff back, he bows where the engine was, ducks low, and wriggles down into the grease. He gags on the fuel line when she turns the key, but pistons start popping in his brain. He's guzzling gas, which burns his throat, but jolts him into focusing on just one thing. Go fast, go fast. It's like his arms are hugging metal, deeply crossed in the car's innards, as if on a bike he's pumping furiously. He farts exhaust and briefly feels the ecstasy of speed, of everything simplified. Hearing the kids faint singing, he's inspired to pump harder, happy that they're happy. His humming shakes the car. This ride is the job for which his heart was wired. All too soon it ends. Somewhere his wife eases back on the pedal, chokes off his fuel. The sudden lack, a knife that shudders through him. He starts to cough. He sucks at the empty fuel line, an addict without his fix of gas. As a dull pain climbs up his spine, he hears the hood pop. Footsteps pass around the car's front bumper. Then light overwhelms his eyes, and grease still cooks his skin. He tries to rise, and only then he knows he's stuck, fused in. His fright is mirrored back on his wife's face. She looks both ways and shuts the hood again. Oh, thank you so much. Um, that's been wonderful. Um, now we're going to have some question and answer. So if you have a question you'd like to ask any or all of our poets, um, if you raise your hand, um, Lisa is going to bring you the mic. Hi, nice to meet you all. Oh, I would like to know how did you get your book publicized, you know what I mean? I know, you got it, I, know you, I know how you got it published, but how did you go about getting the publicity you needed? There's a lot of legwork involved, and, and I think that um, uh, when 
I think even at a major press, and, and I'm, I, I, I've managed to get uh, one book on a university press as well as to some independent presses, I've not been in a major press, but there's a lot that's left to the author these days. There's just not that much that uh, staff and personnel can do for you. And so um, what a press will do is they'll send out some press releases, um, they'll send out copies of your book for review, um, but you kind of have to do a lot of legwork on your own, and sometimes you even have to make sure that you um, uh, do some of the things that they promise that they will do for you because they won't do them right. <laughs> uh, so, 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 okay. So, I'm I'm glad that's hitting home with someone. So, so, uh, so, yeah. You you approach people. You give them the opportunity. You put books in their hands. Uh, you let people know the book is out. You know, you send them links to your work online, and. and Facebook is a godsend. It's a, it's a way that you can let people know about your work, create a page. And, uh, and, and it's essentially uh, one step at a time, one contact at a time, and trying to just you know, be a good member of the poetry community that you know, you'll do the same for others when it's your turn to help out. Basically, I have pretty much the same thing to say. <laughs> uh, our books came out actually a year apart. And um, so that means I get to practice on minds for what I can do for him. Um, basically what Ned said, in addition to attending events and festivals and meeting people, introducing yourself, um, I feel I was really lucky for a long time having gone to festivals here in Baltimore and meeting people like Judy um, and just getting to know lots of people and letting them know you're interested in participating. I guess I would just emphasize uh, getting out there and doing readings. Uh, you know, because there's there's just nothing. I think that's what people hunger for is that connection. And I, I don't think if just by having a review somewhere, especially with poetry, I think you have to make that connection at poetry readings and events like you know like this one. And uh, that that in my experience, and uh, you know the presses that I'm. The press I'm published with is truly like a micro press. You know, they've they've published like three books so far, and uh, but I, you know, just from seeing other people do it, who are friends of mine, and watching Ginny go through it, it's really the readings and that that uh, that get you going. I think. My um, nonfiction book came out on a Canadian publisher. And I think it would have been impossible um, for me to um, have put the book in people's hands um, if it weren't for Amazon and if it weren't for Facebook, where I could be in touch with people. Um, I think that was really, really crucial, because the university press um, would not um, allow um, books to be sold through a website. So that was the only way that you know people could get it would be through me or through um, Amazon. So I found that to be really helpful. Hello, my name is Doreen, and I have a two-part question. Um, the first question: um, I write poetry, but I, do, I like children, and my question is about tone and voice. And when you read, do you keep it on? I even temper for the children, I mean, if you were reading for children, because two of y'all, the men, got my, got my attention, the, the two men, and one of his poems, he just busts right out there, and then another one, he just kind of like lost me. 
and he did the same. He read pretty good too. So, but if you was reading for children, how would you make it exciting? Because when I was growing up, the librarians always get the children's attention. They do it with such gusto. They they even make them jump, make them stare at you, make you wonder. So when you go out on a tour or whatever, and you have to read, and you are not reading children, do it make you feel good, nervous? How you getting across is your work? As, you know, because not everybody's work is for everybody. Not to put you down or you know everything, but if you are not exactly interested, how do you make it work? for you, for them to run out and buy your book. <coughs> Sam, how do you make it? Yeah. <laughs> Tell us, Sam. <laughs> I don't, uh, well, first of all, I, I think that um, one of the curious things about poetry is it's kind of a, a chameleon genre with uh, feet in many different other genres. And I think that that, uh, you know, I, I think some poems do better on the page. Some poems do better spoken. Uh, some, poems, some poems are very visual, and some poems are all about the music. Uh, so I think that, that the type of poetry you're reading is, uh, you know, is, is going to affect how you read it. Uh, I, I guess I would also say that uh, I, I, you know, that librarian who was able to make uh, those kids pay attention, that's a real gift. And I don't know, uh, I think that there are a lot of tips and strategies you can use to, uh, uh, to become a better uh, reader, uh, but I, I, I think sometimes you just have it or you don't. Uh, and uh, I don't know, what do, you, what do you think? You mentioned the word gusto. Um, I'm thinking of the librarians. They have the uh, the time to find what makes that piece or book exciting, and they can um, read it in such a way to sort of emphasize that excitement or interest. Um, and I think you also have to look at what you want to present and the tone it it has itself, and in a way reflect that in how you read it. Um, but certainly, librarians are are very skilled at that, and maybe you want to ask one of them. <laughs> hey guys, how are you? Um, do you sometimes find that your criticism of your spouse's work might be tainted by the fact that you are married, and how do you honestly and objectively, you know, Say, okay, this is good, this is not good, especially if there are some sort of emotions involved? We have no emotions. <laughs> no, Nigel, I'm just teasing you. Um, well, uh, actually, I, I think in our poetic partnership, it, it, it's not an issue. Uh, uh, Jane and I write very differently from each other, so uh, I don't feel that there's a, a kind of competition. I think we have different audiences and different people like our work. Although, you know, I love Jane's work, and, and I think Jane enjoys the kind of work I enjoy, too. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I also think that 
if, if anything, I'm probably um, demanding in terms of making sure that, that Jane's work is done, right? Right. Because I think it's harder to finish a free verse poem, because a free verse poem is organic, and how it's going to break down uh, uh, through syntax and through line breaks is a pretty complicated issue sometimes on the page and also in performance. And so, uh, and so I think it's by nature an even more challenging thing. When I write free verse poems, I sometimes have to keep them around for a couple of years before they kind of settle into what seems to be the, the crystallized final form. So I think that's a little bit harder. And, if you're, and I'm frequently writing in meter, as you know, and uh, that allows me to sometimes say, hey, this thing's done. You know, the rhymes are there, the lines are there, I have the form. And I think it's one of the great advantages that people that, that write in meter and rhyme enjoy, which is uh, an, an existing form or a form you're trying to revise and work with that allows you to say, okay, this is kind of how it's going to look. And in a free verse poem like the one about mm -hmm. the pretty committee, just unfolding endlessly with so many surprises, um, uh, I'm just really in awe of it. And, and it's really a challenge to write. Yeah, it does take a long time. I would say that that's probably right. Um, and I, I would say that um, I, I always think of Nat as my um, first reader. Um, and I completely trust his judgment. So it's very satisfying for me to show him my work and um, you know, know that the comments that I'm going to receive are going to be um, thoughtful and truthful in what I need to hear at a given moment. So that's great. Sam and I made uh, two important decisions early in our relationship. <laughs> we had seen so many other poets or writers kind of pat their partners on the back. Yes, honey, that's great. And we're secretly like, ooh, oh. um, And we decided we never wanted to do that. We always wanted to be completely, totally honest about what we thought about each other's work. So um, that was the first decision. And then the second decision was that he's smarter, but I'm always right. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's really helpful. But there comes a, a point um, where you have to have a, a certain separation, even though my poems most of the time are very, very personal, I, I want them to be the best poems they can be. And I know that he is only going to give me comments to support that. Um, so I, I get, like Jane said, Sam is almost always my first reader, and I trust him. There are very, very few instances where he's given me advice and somebody else has given me a different piece of advice. And it's very, very rare that I go with the other idea. <laughs> Although, you know, there have been a few, uh, there have been some situations recently. You know, it's like I say, you know, I don't like this, I don't like that. And, uh, and then she hasn't changed it. Uh, and she's gone <laughs> on and, ta and taken it to a, uh, you know, to a workshop. And uh, the other people in the workshop like it much more than I think they're going to. Uh, and then, uh, and then, not too much longer later, it gets published in a journal. And <laughs> once I once I read She's it, right. <laughs> once I read it in the journal, you know, there's something about a poem being in print. I hate to say it, but once some once you know it's gone through that and it's in print, I I tend to you know I say yeah you know that's actually pretty good, and I realize that you know so I I have blind spots. And so I, I would, I would hate it if, uh, if Ginny were always, you know, were always going to say, oh yeah, 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 that's right, and you're so right, and of course I'm not the right one, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but sometimes, sometimes she, you know, she's willing to be stubborn and continue with the choices that she's made, and she turns out to be right in the end. So, 
so I'm glad she does that because just if she didn't, that would feel like a terrible responsibility for me. There's one thing that I was also thinking of with, with Nigel's question um, about the aspects of patting someone on the back. Um, there's also um, accidents that happen that, that I find um, that come about from um, just being together that um, Ned will suggest a poem that I would often on my own overlook. And so he will often encourage me to explore new subjects. We might be watching the X-Files and mm -hmm. I'll suddenly remember, oh, oh I went cool. to the FBI, you know, when I was a Girl Scout. And he'll say, write that down on, you know, in your notebook. Put it down and write a poem. And so it'll nudge me toward subject matter um, that I might not have explored. And I think that's one of the sort of happy accidents that comes about um, from being with having your poetic partner being your domestic partner. <laughs> I've got too many questions, so I'm not going to ask them. I follow Billy Collins and a few other people's advice and try to steal everything I can. So that's why I was scribbling. And all four of you, I... I really couldn't scribble enough because they were, I just started putting down exclamation points, which means one of these days I'm going to have to get a job and buy your doggone books. <laughs> I'm going to uh, try to answer Nigel's questions and disagree with all of all four of you. You are immensely brave in what you have done. What I have always tried to do, and with encouragement from a few people like Virginia, who though I hardly know her, is always saying, write it down whenever she comments on my impossibly long Facebook uh, jottings. But everything that the four of you said was so incredibly brave. I can read Heather McHugh or Billy Collins to note two of my favorites and say, yeah, right, sure. They didn't really have that love. They didn't really have that romance. And the four of you have just showed that whether it's a flashlight and a horse or a soccer game, the other person is always there. And I don't mean to diminish um, Jane and, and Ned, but Sam and Jenny were just so incredibly brave and beautiful, and uh, that that honeymoon trip is just, and the shower scene was, <laughs> no, wait a minute. That's pretty brave. This, this, I hope, is my best compliment before I talk too much, was probably the least naked thing that either of the two of you said about one another. Those were beautiful in, in, in their expression. I hope to be able to do it, and I'll rob a bank and buy your books. I don't know. <laughs> I think there, there was a hand up over here. Have any of you ever written a poem about the same thing? Yes. Actually, in my well, I'm being playful. I'm, you know, I'm in in my second book, Lives of the Sleepers. Uh, uh, I was writing a lot of poems. Uh, this was back when we were friends, before we were uh, married or a couple. I was writing a, a poems about a, a relationship that had ended. Um, and uh, uh, Jane was also writing poems at the time, and uh, I think she was in a, 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 I would say, a difficult marriage. Yeah. And so we were friends and colleagues, and so there's actually like a lot of uh, interplay, but it's kind of hard to tell because uh, things, Jane did things like take titles of poems of mine, but some of those poems have appeared in print, but not in any books. 
So she has a poem called Madonna in Repose in her book. But you, my poem, Madonna in Repose, you'll almost never find because it's in some old newspaper print journal that came out somewhere in the 90s and is now in somebody's basement in a carton somewhere. So, uh, so, so we, and, we, and some of the stuff about saints, like, like the, yeah. the, 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 the bread-stealing uh, saints, right. uh, that's, that's very much a, a, an overlap between my book, Lives of the Sleepers, and her book, Assignation and Vanishing Point. Um, so, yeah, more like a poetic conversation right, right. than writing about the same thing. Mm -hmm. I would say that's right. Uh, we don't think we have precisely, like we each have poems about our children, mm -hmm. but not the same situations with the children, for example. I, uh, I, I, I occasionally I've I remember at one point I was suggesting that we might try and do like a poetic dialogue, like you would write a poem and I'd respond to it with a poem. Uh, somehow we never, that never, the enthusiasm never quite, uh, quite took off on that one. Uh, I don't know, I, I feel like, you know, and we, we cover a lot of the same subject matter, but our voices are very different, so it's hard to, uh, I don't. I can't think of anything that's that really feels like we're tackling the same subject. Um, um, okay, I think this will be the last question. Okay. God. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that's pressure. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's a simple question. It's not. I know you all love each other, which is wonderful and obvious. And but I wanted to find out what. What you love most about being poets and about working with poetry, what gives you the most joy or not, but what you love the most about it, each of you. <laughs> I know um, there was this great line in um, Sylvia Plath's journals, that like, if I don't go on writing, the world beats and beats like a slack drum. And that really resonates for me, that the world comes alive and I discover something very important. Um, when I'm writing poems, yeah, I, you know, I find writing poems to be a very affirming um, experience and activity. I feel physically better, emotionally better. Um, so uh, it's partly therapeutic, but also I find uh, putting your experience and your past and your memory into some kind of coherent order means that um, things seem to matter more. Some memories, some people, some lives are preserved that otherwise might be washed away. Um, so so the, the ability to return to those moments and people through poems and the experience of practicing the art of poetry, um, I find to be um, emotionally and physically reassuring and satisfying. The same thing about some, some of my poems are working through some things and sometimes they're more like I'm listening to a voice uh, coming through me, not hearing you know random voices here and there. But um, sometimes it's it's like turning my own mind off and allowing that other voice to come through, and that is really really freeing um, and relaxing. And there's not so much pressure there because it feels like you know it's not mine. <laughs> Um, and one of the most satisfying things about it is, uh, or about writing poetry, sharing poetry, is feeling that uh, connection when you've made that connection with someone else and you know 
some other person has has really understood or felt, experienced what it was, and there's so few things that come close to that for me. I think when you think about it, uh, most of the speech, most of the public speech that we do is paid speech. It's like we have a job, uh, you know, where we're paid to speak. Uh, or most of the most of the speech that we have to other people is, uh, you know, it's social speech. You know, we're we're just making sounds in order to sort of lubricate the social wheels. Uh, so there's so to me, it's just uh, it's just incredibly freeing that I can uh, I can um, just say the language that you know I that I want to speak. And make it beautiful in the way that I want it to be beautiful. And uh, very often, I, I think that uh, you know other people uh, get something out of that. You know, it's so that I feel like that's that to me feels like what poetry is about. Well, thank you. Okay, we're going to have one closing poem um, from each poet before we finish the evening. Thanks. I'll read one. I've, I've kind of been on a Sestina jag lately. <laughs> and uh, this, this poem was, uh, I think it just barely didn't make it into the book. Uh, although maybe the editors wouldn't have wanted to go into the book. Who knows? Um, so it's a Sestina, which means you'll see the, the, the same six words will kind of circulate around through it. It's called The Glow. Now and then... We find both cats curled up upon our sheets, whiskered islands on a wrinkled ocean. And then the children fall asleep here after running wild. They feel the glow, not knowing what it is. It is the glow of hurriedly unbuttoning each other while the cats gleam next to us like lanterns. A wild satisfaction penetrates the sheets and fills our house. Cats and children drawn to it like to an ocean. When I'm near you, I can sense that ocean. I see it in the glow of your bare skin when children safely dream beyond the walls and only cats are looking. Late at night, when bedsheets billow out like sails into the wild. Who could guess that we set sail into the wild? Two mild-mannered people with an ocean, looking sideways, setting books aside. The sheets profound beneath us like we're buoyed on a glow that's 12 years deep, blazing with the happiness of children. Soon the eyeglasses come off from nowhere, cats the joy of being in you in the night. The cats beside us purring loudly, they are tame and wild. We pause, was that the children? No? Gazing on you, I'm reminded of the ocean. My violent wonder as a child, first its glow between the trees, 
then sheets on sheets of water spilling into crash, the gleaming sheets of every grief and happiness. The cat's abandoned ship, paws plunk on wood. I swear you glow like you could brighten into sky. How do I grasp the wild in you? Dissolve completely in the ocean, but live to say good morning to the children. Good morning. As the children climb upon our sheets, we see them and the cats, but also through them to an ocean that's wild and vast. We are an island in its glow. This is the last poem in my book. It's uh, written directly to the reader, and it, uh, it's called Reader, with a comma after. Reader, lean a little closer. I want to give you something soft, a blanket, a wish, a gold heart-shaped locket. Few of us are lucky in love or money, so think of this as a charm a spell cast or a trinket for your neck or wrist. You've met some whose bank accounts are bursting, whose fridge is never less than full, and it seems they always have a circle of friends with gleaming glasses raised. And good for them. But more than likely, here's the secret. You're like me and I'm like you, and we're all brokenhearted even the lucky ones. We drink and avoid the eyes reflected in the glass, laugh when our hands go unshaken, and make for the fifth year in a row the very same resolutions, or we simply turn toward the more comfortable dark. It's hard to look at gold and see yourself, but it's soft and warm and true, like a blanket and love, and even if this is as close as we ever come to meeting, please take this wish, see it smile as it shakes your hand, go on, open the curtains to the sun and your delicious brokenheartedness, raise your good human face. This is a poem called Meditation on a Line from Hafiz, and Hafiz is a Persian poet. Um, and it's about um, looking for Dante's home in Florence. Um, an afternoon given to walks along the Arno to shaded medieval alleys where maps said we'd find the poet's home. One regret, and we found instead walls scaffolded, the Casa di Dante wrapped in painter's plastic, no tours the whole of that fevered season. Dear world, we found instead the tiny church where Dante first saw his Beatrice, the pocked walls from when the Arno escaped its banks and rising left its visible mark. I am determined not to have the light of searing conviction when I am lying on my deathbed, drifting back to the ghostly square where one black-robed hound of God called forth a corps of moral spies for public denunciation and ordeal is that under the dark palm of the Tuscan sun in the flutter of Pache flags, I did not kiss you enough. Well, 
I'm going to end with a Shakespearean sonnet that was in Light Quarterly and uh, touch on a subject that I know is close to all of our hearts. This is called Poetry and Sex. Historically, the link is pretty strong. One leads straight to the other, usually. Neither is known for lasting very long. Either may be practiced formally or with abandon anywhere at all. Both begin with words, but end in silence. Both delight as much as they appall, whether they lead to tears, sleep, or violence. Both cost always more than you'd expect, and both require a passion for the hunt, a willingness to fail as you detect which strategies pay off and which ones won't, whether you practice in the North or South. And yes, both usually require the mouth. Thank you so very much, um, Jane, Ned, Virginia, and Sam, for your poetry and your conversation. This has been really wonderful. And um, I just wanted to remind everyone that the poet's books are on sale in the back of the room. So please buy them. And as you're leaving on your left, um, there are some evaluation forms. If you want to take a minute and leave uh, the library a comment about this event, that would be appreciated. Thank you all so very much for coming. Thank you.